Everybody ready? Yes. <sighs> There's like a fucking buzz saw going on upstairs. <laughs> I don't know if you can I hear can't, it at I, I, To be honest, I can't hear it. Okay, so. okay great. great. So it'll probably be good. Um, just wait until the hammers start. Hi. Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on lead vocals, Mr. Sebastian Bach. The Canadian pretty boy who took the world by storm as frontman for the late 80s hard rocker Skid Row will follow Bach and his journey from small town rock and roll dreams to worldwide success to a second career in front of the camera and on stage through his memoir, 18 in Life on Skid Row. Hell yeah. But first, let's introduce our own guest for today's show on loan from the excellent Bad Books podcast, I Don't Even Own a Television. It's J.W. Friedman. Hello, hello. Jay. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, thanks for uh, inviting me. Uh, so your show about bad books, I would consider, I mean, a bit of a spiritual uh, uh, godfather for this. It was one of the things that I was listening to when when I uh, uh, thought about putting this show together. Uh, so I think that that of, uh, among the world of podcasts, there are many bad movies podcasts, but not that many bad books shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. we might be among the, the very few podcasters, especially Molly, because she does most of the reading, who spend <laughs> all of their free time uh, uh, just absorbing horrible prose into their brains and spitting it back out. Do you read any good books at this point? Do you have time? Um, I do, but that's specifically why we do our show bi-weekly <laughs> instead of every week. Um, mm. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's literally to give myself time to read things I actually enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I just read like a novel for the first time in a while recently that was like actually good. And I was like, oh, right. This is like a this is like a normal reading experience instead of trying <laughs> to like parse the the wild mind of Sebastian Bach, which I had to do. So yeah. I imagine it would drive you a little bit, a little bit cray after a while. Yeah, we tried to do uh, weekly for a little while at the very beginning of the show, and it yeah, there was no time to actually put anything I liked in my head. You know, it was just like yep. nonstop horrible shit, and uh, yeah, it gets old pretty fast. Yeah, so. well, I I thought that um, your your episode on the insane clown posse memoir was was definitely. Uh, informative and kind of how how we approach music memoirs specifically because <laughs> oh my god we might have to do that at some point yeah. too and see if we could find our own angle on it but like that was that was wild highly recommend uh, everyone listen to that there are many many angles you could take with the insane clown posse <laughs> yeah <laughs> well I also like that that's like a a rare memoir book it's like that book isn't really in print anymore and you had to find didn't like a fan send you a PDF of it and it's like five hundred pages long or something. I, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but yeah, it's out of print um, because they I believe they've changed their mythos once again. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's not just that it's out of print. It's that it's like redacted uh, from from the it's dark not carnival canon. universe. Yeah. 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 It's no exactly. It's no longer canon. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> We're going to have to go to the get like a special appointment at the New York uh, Library rare books room to find yeah. a copy of the ICP. Put memoir. on a pair of like those white gloves so it doesn't get all dusty. Yeah, it's exactly. kind of like Kanye releasing an album and then being like, I'm a fix wolves. They fix the dark carnival. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Juggalo extended universe is wide in its scope. Yeah. So you have to be. <laughs> I just True. I wish there were uh, like the Star Wars extended universe where there were like a, a whole fleet of novelists doing uh, uh, fictional universe novels uh, within the Dark Carnival Ooh. universe. 
They'd probably be down with that. And, you know, they already have like an entire record label of other rappers that paint their faces like clowns. So. <laughs> So now they just have to find some novelists who will paint their faces like clowns. Yeah. One of them is named Blaze Your Dead Homie. Oh, that's which such is a great name. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite names in music. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's my Very question good. about Blaze Your Dead Homie. Is Blaze like a ghost of your dead homie? Or is it instead commanding to perhaps like smoke the ashes of your dead homie? That's the I like image it that because it works both ways, but this is actually something I put a lot of thought into. <laughs> yes. And I think the idea is that you're supposed to blaze with your dead homie, mm-hmm. right? Like Okay. It's like pouring one out. Yeah. But like when, yep. when you light up that backwoods, you gotta be <laughs> you gotta be thinking of the ones you've lost. Exactly. <laughs> that's per, that's the more poetic way to think about it. Yeah, that's beautiful. But um, honestly, it's probably more like set your dead friends up. <laughs> because it's it's that, the that's uh, more in line. It's yeah. the insane clown version of a Viking funeral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's what was my one question to do just a little like a bad books round table. Do you find that there's anything like, I mean, obviously there's a difference between fiction and memoir, but I was just curious if, if you know, if either of you guys had favorite tropes of the bad art musicians memoir genre that you've been uh, now that you've read a, at least a few of them. Molly and I were talking yesterday that one of uh, one of our favorites is the uh, in media res yeah. Uh, opener. Oh, yeah. Like I was on stage and then this happened. <laughs> the, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We did. We did Slash's uh, autobiography. Yes. And that starts with him playing guitar and then having a heart attack in the middle of a set. Yes. So, yep. Yeah. <laughs> we so we we did Slash's memoir. And I, I don't even think I included that in our notes because I was just like, this is I feel like we just need to like get right into his life. But yes, that is how it started was him being like, oh, right. My heart is like not beating at a normal pace. Like I need to play the guitar even <laughs> harder and delve more into the soul of rock and roll, but also get an EKG like really fast. I think my favorite maybe is that, you know, like the people who write these always feel the need to do the hero's journey with, yes. with rock and roll musicians. Mm-hmm. So they're always like, even if someone had led a very boring suburban sheltered life they still have this like you know it's presented as a real low point that they had to overcome yes <laughs> you know yes cool because this is what sebastian bach does and what a lot of other of the kind of shittier memoirs that i've read is a lot of people use their earliest memories as like some sort of profound you know saying something about how their life is going to be even though i'm sure everyone's earliest memories are basically that same level of banal but it's like oh no i remember i was on the playground and someone pushed me over and i thought no one's ever gonna push me over ever again <laughs> and I became you know Henry Rollins or whatever the fuck I'm gonna do squats until I'm incapable of being pushed over yeah what, Henry Rollins what story. was Sebastian Bach's inciting incident was someone wore leather pants tighter than him right. <laughs> uh, never I'll, again I'll just do uh, one more uh, the airing the, the, the showing your hand by airing a a grievance so specific at like an extended period of length where you're like, where it gets to the point in the memoir where it's not just filling up pages. It's like, okay, dude, you're pissed off about this enough that we can tell that you're the problem here. He's mad online or in print. Yes. Oh yeah. Those are great. Um, geez. I can't remember which one it was that we read that had like almost an entire chapter about drum machines and auto tune. (laughs) (laughs) Where it was just like grumpy old man, like the kids these days, they don't even need to learn how to sing for real. It may have been Anthony Kiedis, which makes it extra hilarious. Well, Anthony Kiedis does have the good story about how uh, everybody flipped out when um, Gil from Gang of Four 
Andy Gill was like, hey, oh, yes. use this drum machine so you can keep time. And everybody was like, drum machines don't, don't got no soul. Don't have any. And then they made the drummer. Uh, it was a click track. They're like, oh, fuck click tracks. Like, yeah. it's not real. It has no and then they soul. served him a pizza, a pizza with poop on it or yeah. something. Yeah. Shit pizza. Yeah. I think that might be what I was thinking of. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I, I really like those anti-technology rants mm-hmm. coming yeah. from, you know, like guys who are still playing distorted guitars through eight pedals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, all right. Let's get into a little bit of Sebastian Bach. Um, I'll, we usually start off by uh, talking about our experiences with Skid Row or what we know about the, the artist before um, we started. Jay, I know you said over or before we start the show, I know you said over email that Skid Row was one of your early favorite bands. No, that that is absolutely true. Yeah, I um I was a kid who bought Metal Edge magazine okay. Like, okay. in the eighties, and I would cut out all those like pinup photos of the bands, and like my whole bedroom was covered with like Warrant and Skid Row <laughs> and Poison, which is in retrospect really embarrassing. Amazing. But um yeah, for some reason I really really loved Skid Row. I think Skid Row and Poison were probably my two favorite like non weird owl bands. <laughs> so, <laughs> definitely, um, yeah, so that definitely I, uh, I, depicts a certain kind of kid where it's like Skid Row, Poison, and Weird Al. Yeah, uh, they might be giants also for some reason. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I, I distinctly remember thinking that they were just the coolest thing, and especially their bass player Rachel Bolin had like the nose piercing mm. and the ear piercing. And, and and a chain between them. Oh, and wow. I just that Shit. Was so That's really cool. next level. That is, that is fucking cool. Yeah. That's like the kind of piercing that you only ever actually see in a movie, like no a real human does, unless I guess you're the bass player for Skid Row. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, what do you know about Skid Row? I feel like I knew very little about Skid Row. I like knew about them and the, the sort of pantheon of those 80s. Uh, hair metal bands, although Sebastian says in the book that he does not relish the term hair metal. Um, He doesn't love it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was honestly probably most aware of like Skid Row and Sebastian Bach from when VH1 just went in on, um, you know, like carving up these old uh, 80s and early 90s rock and roll personalities for reality shows. And I feel like I was aware of him in that way. Um, He was also (laughs) I'm not a Gilmore Girls person. I feel like I'm the only person in my age and peer group who is not. And I feel neutral about that um but he was on Kilmore Girls also (laughs) yeah playing a rocker I believe sure which I think is kind of funny so I was I was more aware of him in like a tv standpoint as opposed to like a musical standpoint I I don't I don't want to jump format here so you know please forgive me if I'm I'm committing a faux pas but I am curious having not read the book how many times does he insist that Skid Row is actually a punk band (laughs) um at least at least a few at least a few yes okay Um, I I, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We we'll get into this later, but there there's a like little bit where he kind of go there's an extended bit where he talks about the authenticity of of Skid Row and of himself and his background too. So, yes. Uh, okay, sorry uh, to go off track. Oh, no, yes, it's I good. mentioned okay. him him hating the term hair metal. I was like, "Oh, I know he's going to say it's cuz they were actually punk." Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'll just I just have one real quick is that my main experience with Sebastian Bach is seeing him live on stage as Jesus Christ in the uh-huh. touring production of Jesus Christ Superstar in Cincinnati, Ohio in probably 2001 or two. Uh, and I will say, great Jesus. He really, uh, yeah. that's basically exactly who you want for that show. He he killed it as Jesus. Uh, oh, he's got the hair. He's got the pipes. Yeah. 
Yeah. He's got the whole vibe of it. Like, you know, that, that, that production, Jesus gets to be a little angry when he does like the, the throw out the money. Why father? Why? (laughs) Yes. I don't, I don't know any of the actual like songs from Jesus Christ Superstar (laughs) off the top of my head, but I I knew there was one where he yells at dad, right? Yes. Daddy. I really like the, I really like the jazzy King Herod number where he does like a Vegas, uh, uh, song and dance number about how he's going to crucify Jesus. Oh dear. Yeah. I've actually I'm I've never seen it. I'm woefully ignorant, but uh, I don't know. Sebastian Bach as Jesus in any context makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. it really worked. Uh he sold it. I was like, well, this I guy, bet this this Jesus rocks. I bet he looks amazing on the cross too. Yeah. They probably had to get a massive cross because dude is like six foot four or five or something. Yeah, like, especially considering that most musical theater people are like fairly short. Yeah. Because they're all dancers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's Skid Row. Uh, Molly, yeah. do you want to tell us about let's, Sebastian Bach's let's life? Let's dig in. Um, we begin as all, all, all these great memoirs are in media res. It's December, 1989. Uh, Sebastian is standing on stage in front of a packed arena with my face and hands covered in my own blood. Oh yes. I Pearl. see, I see red, not from the blood in my eyes, but from the anger in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> so someone has so thrown yes. a fan has thrown a bottle at him and uh, he kind of he like hulks out and he says later he's like he really relates to the Hulk <laughs> because he just like he gets he has such a bad temper and he just gets so angry that he just doesn't understand what he's doing. Whom's among us does not become a uh, green rage monster at, yeah. the, at the slightest uh, infliction. And so he threw the bottle back into the stands like he just like whopped it out and then he was like cool good did that um, and <laughs> And then later, like the tour, they get in the tour bus, they go to the next spot and then state troopers pull them over and arrest Sebastian because he has broken the nose of a female fan by throwing that bottle back into the crowd. Um, so he 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 goes to county jail or like he goes to the local police precinct and is like, you know, locked into a cell. We never hear about this again. <laughs> well, that's interesting because that's like one of the most kind of well-known Sebastian Bach tales that you'll hear. Yeah. And so it almost feels like he's starting off the book just like, let's get this out of the way first, <laughs> yes. you know? All that bad shit you heard about me, there was a reason for it. There was a reason you know? for it. I was, it was just because I was dr- mad. And I don't even think he was drunk because he's one of those musicians who says like, oh, no, I don't drink before shows. <laughs> I just drink every yeah. other time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he 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 said he's like, it, you know, my infamous little like spiel that I went into before I, I whipped the bottle back into the crowd. So I think he's aware of of this like as a moment that everyone knows about. I didn't know about it. I like the the format of putting just a anecdote that then has no structural relationship with anything else in the book right up top. It's a, <laughs> it's not a immediate res. It's like, a, I don't know, in obscure res. Yes. He, he ends it's, it by saying youth gone wild, but at what cost? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> youth gone wild is, is this the title of his kid. <laughs> he just, we well, go in uh, immediately. Yeah. You do spend your life on trial um, <laughs> when you're the youth gone wild. So you do spend your life on trial if you keep, you know, assaulting, assaulting people. people. Yes, yeah. oh, oh, man. and that's also, you know, in in terms of him claiming that uh, that Skid Row is more more punk rock is like punk rock folks like they get bottles thrown at them all the time. Yeah, they love that shit. Yeah. You, should, you should enjoy it. Um, anyway, so that, that was a little in media res moment. We go back in time. So he was born, Sebastian Bach was born, um, Sebastian B, am I pronouncing this right? Bjork. So he changed his name a little bit from Bjork 
Birktabak. Um, he was born in the Bahamas on April 3rd, uh, 1968. <laughs> yes. So he's, uh, his mother, I believe is from the Bahamas and I can't remember where his dad is from. His mom's a nurse. I would not his have dad's an artist. him to be a Bahamanian. He's a, he's a Baha man. <laughs> yeah. He is the one who lets the dogs out. <laughs> he lets the dogs out. Um, so his dad's a visual artist. He gets a, a gig at a, a teaching art at a college in Ontario. So they moved to Ontario when he's like in in his wee years. That natural progression from uh, Bahamas to Ontario. Yeah, a little jarring. Um, he he says one of his his first memories, and this one actually is kind of weird. He says he remembers island women who were supposed to be babysitting him, taping horns like artificial horns to his forehead and performing some sort of ritual. And then his at which point his parents like came home and like walked in the door and saw that uh, these like island women were performing some kind of situation. And he said, "Just maybe they did cast a spell on me that night, a spell on me that would see me cast a spell of my own." <laughs> upon the whole world. Oh my god. Oh my god. I like the casual uh, speculation that he has been blessed by island magic. <laughs> I uh I actually spent a couple years of my early childhood in the West Indies. Really? Uh, oh yeah. N- yeah, no one ever cast a spell on me though. <laughs> oh my god. That you remember. Were, yeah. they, you know, they they were mostly um Baptists if I remember correctly. <laughs> so. They're not not really into that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah, but this was Nevis and not the Bahamas, so you never know. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, he. I think it, it did have a, an influence on him in some way, but he goes back to Canada. I mean, imagine just walking in on that <laughs> babysitters <laughs> being like, uh, we can explain, Mrs. Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> this is normal. Um, so they, they go to Ontario, um, when he's a kid, he sings in a church choir. That's like a very common entryway, uh, to rockstar singers becoming rockstar singers. He gets paid $3 a month, which he calculates will buy him two kiss posters a month. (laughs) He loves kiss. Oh my uh, God. uh, The, uh, late seventies economy of, of only kiss posters. (laughs) You could go down to the store and trade them for a bag of cheetah. Yeah, That'll he's, be one and a half kiss posters. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. The the half with Gene on it. <laughs> it's like company company script. script. Yeah. yeah. When you when you work in the the kiss comic book mind, stirring all their blood into the ink. Yeah. He references that. He says that he he his dad takes him to a comic book store and get, he gets a kiss comic that is printed in kiss ink. Yeah. And he's he loses his mind. He thinks that's the coolest thing ever, and he thought it was real. So. He was obsessed with Kiss. We'll eventually cover Kiss. I know I've been promising Kiss basically since we st- we started uh, this show, but it's amazing the universe of Kiss paraphernalia they put out that uh, was looks and seems so cheap and cheesy in retrospect, but was like the cutting edge of band promotion at the time. Yeah, and people really responded to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was like Beatles paraphernalia and like monkeys lunchboxes and stuff, but just like ha- being able to have real physical tokens of, of, of a band like that, that yeah. was that they big merged and the like fuck out. evil and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Niall Rogers was influenced by Kiss when he was building Cheek. He was like, oh, you can have like, you could be like a band with distinct personalities that don't have to be you. Like, we, I should definitely do that. We can, you know, all wear our different suits and, and have it be cool. So yeah, K- Kiss was was a influential type of band. Um, I've oh, I've always thought of them kind of actually as the insane clown posse of their time. That yes. Yes. Is that sounds right to me. Yes. 
It's, you know, makeup, dudes wearing makeup is very powerful. It is. Still, and and then. I think it's always going to, like, rip people's minds apart a little bit, and I think that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, he's obsessed with Kiss. There's definitely a moment in his childhood where I think his brain kind of breaks a little bit because the last time he ever sees his family all together is when his dad takes him to a kiss concert in Canada. And then his parents get divorced when he's 10. And like, that's the last time that they, they, he saw everyone together and happy. And so I feel like he, he is like putting rock and roll and like family destruction together in his mind. And it's, it's devastating. Yeah. That'll, that'll put a psychological uh, pin in kiss in your brain. I mean, that's the reason I love pizza. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Sebastian loves to sing. He talks all through the book about how obsessed we, he is with singing. He is a he's a singer by nature. He um, he he go, he transfers from like a private uh, private middle school to a public high school, and he just goes real dirtbag, uh, dropping acid at the arcade. Um, Hell yeah! Trying to sing sing to all the high notes of like a que- Queensryche song. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's how I've always pronounced oh, it. You, that is how it's pronounced. Great. They were another one of my favorite bands. Amazing. So. They're definitely one of the most badassly spelled bands of all time. I didn't realize. And you know, that little pointy logo they have, yeah. it has a name. It's oh, yeah. called the Tri-Rike. <laughs> <laughs> Good branding is so crucial to, yeah. to bands at this time. More bands should have like really solid logos. I mean, yeah, the, all these, I feel like this was like a golden age of band self-mythologizing. And, you know, Bands, especially like too cool, like cool mainstream bands don't do that anymore. And they really should. Yeah. You know what I noticed is that, you know, who still do does um, logos for, for their band names are EDM DJs yes. and producers. Because if you look at like a festival oh, poster yeah. for an EDM show, everyone has their little like signature word mark. Yeah. But like indie bands aren't doing that. Yeah. They need to. Well, I think they're it's all cool. about authenticity. Yeah. And yeah. Cool logos aren't, aren't, they aren't authentic. Yeah. yeah. And neither are cool like waist length leather coats and like pointy <laughs> boots. <laughs> but that is that is something that I can imagine on on EDM guys being being like, yeah, I should I should definitely wear a leather duster while I spin. Yeah, just get a little hot. I mean, you got people wearing marshmallow heads. Like, yeah, a leather jacket is it's not it's yeah. not that far of a far of a leap. Um, he he wants to join a rock band. He auditions for this rock band. Uh, he he auditions and he gets in. He changes their name to Kid Wicked. Wicked is spelled W I K K I D. Kid Wicked. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a great name. No, it's it's kind of incredible. He's 14 at the time, so I think one of the other signature things about Sebastian Bach is he's young as fuck when he's doing all this stuff. He's just a he's just a wicked a wicked kid. A kid wicked. <laughs> I'm actually wi- surprised there's no Y's in the spelling of kid wicked. Yes. I, I mean, like I have, it's been going on for like 20 years now. I have like a hair metal parody, like a solo project named kid love with two D's. <laughs> yes. like K-I-D-D-L-U-V. Oh okay. my God. Like this, that was, is remarkably close to kid wicked, but you know, mine's supposed to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things I can never quite get a beat on even like reading a lot about 80s metal is how much the people in it thought that it was serious versus funny i mean obviously there's a range where some people think it's dead serious but i think that a Mm -hmm. lot of these groups had a little more of a sense of humor to it than they are were given credit to or are given credit for now 
I think it really depends on who you're talking about. And I have a feeling, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, I have a feeling Skid Row is probably on the pretty taking themselves seriously side of that scale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he he goes on tour in Canada with Kid Wicked. He says, we got crabs in Sudbury, smoked hash in Quebec. I was still underage, headlining these clubs, standing on the tables, careful not to kick the lines of cocaine the Montreal bikers had laid out. <laughs> He's a child. Yeah. yeah, he's a child. Um, he, it's always so funny to think of uh, my, Montreal as being like a a, a dirt bag or like a dangerous city because it is does have like this strip club culture there and yeah, stuff. It's a little seedy in but Montreal. It, it is, but then it's also like from our sensibilities, you go there and it's like this beautiful French city. It's yeah. just like hard imagining like the the quaint Frenchman of uh, of Canada of being like down and dirty cocaine bikers, but also. When you really get to know it, you know that the French are the dirtbags of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my family you're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, I did not mean to offend. It's my, my it's family. Okay. No, there are a lot of Quebecois in my family. So. <laughs> well, uh, do you do you agree? Have spending time with the Quebecois? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair. It's a, it's a raunchy culture for sure. Yes. Raunchy culture. They, they invented their own way to swear. So that's yes. all you need to know. That's yeah. cool. That is cool. Good job. Um, Sebastian is so good and kid wicked that he gets poached by a Detroit band called Madame X. <laughs> Um, he is going to cross the border. I know all these names are so. I could just listen oh. to a name, a, a list of names of local uh, metal bands from like 1980 to 1988 all day. Yeah, uh, I uh, I worked in a kitchen once with a, uh, a dishwasher who was in a band called Wild Child with with Wise. For yes, amazing. So. It's so good. It's like let's just take all these sort of like glamorous phrases that suggest you know lusty behaviors and just tweak the spelling so that yeah. they're just a little bit weird more wise <laughs> light bright but with wise. yes <laughs> um so yeah madame madame x they uh they tell him to come across across the border he nearly misses the opportunity to join them because the first time he tries to get across the border to detroit he shows up to customs in my full stage gear hair teased up to the sky a pinstripe suit jacket i was seven feet tall and my hair looked like a pineapple <laughs> so he's still like seven, you know 15 or 16 at this point he's just like he's a he's a teen he's a wild teen why I just it just seems like a lot of look when I'm traveling I try to go as low key as possible I bar- barely even bathe before I go I just couldn't imagine using that much hairspray before I tried to to leave the country I think he thought that if he looked like a rock star he would they would be like oh yes of course sir like it, it was like his job interview <laughs> like oh yes you look you look like you're a rock star like here c- come this way let's stamp your passport <laughs> go Crazy. on through yeah yes. <laughs> this, this seems right. Um, I should also say that he he meets his first wife when he's 15 and his wife Maria is 21. Wow. Um, they don't get married oh, then, dear. obviously, but a little while later. And he has she has uh, his first two children a little bit later on. Uh, but that's that's a thing that happened. <laughs> that's nuts. I you don't hear that very often. No, um, I get that just must be a signal of how like wildly charismatic he must be for a 15 yeah. year old to pull a 21 year old. Yeah. I mean, like Slash was also hooking up with older women and like I think Duff was too. I think like 
I think the po- the politics of age and age lines in relationships was very blurry at this time. Yes. Um, in that's in that scene for sure yeah. too because you're, you're you're talking about like viper room type yes. clubs yeah. where yeah, yeah everyone's like coke to the gills and stuff yeah so. I don't think there was a I don't think anyone was carding each other before yeah. these things were happening for I better mean, or for worse things change very much but Molly imagine being 21 having just moved to New York <laughs> and be and having met a 15 year old and being like yeah I think I can make this work I would just imagine the amount of of cocaine I would have to do to think that that was okay <laughs> it'd be a whole so, um, whole mountain uh, what. What what's that about Fortnite again? Can you explain in more detail? I'm really impressed. No, baby, come on. I'll call you back in five. I do want to hear about how your math test went. Oh my god. Oh, it's terrible. Um, yeah. So he 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 acknowledges Maria. He doesn't really talk about Maria that much. Uh, except for to acknowledge when she when she has his children, but she's he's with her for a long what ends up being a long time. They don't get officially divorced until 2010, but obviously he's oh, wow. he's having sex with other women the entire time that they're together. I don't think there's any kind of period of actual monogamy, which. Okay, okay, Sebastian, that's fine. Um, so the actual origin story of how Sebastian Bach gets into Skid Row, I'll I'll try to detail this so that everyone can understand because it's so New Jersey that it's it like hurts it hurts me. <laughs> so Sebastian Bach, he's in America at this point. Um, he's he was singing at a rock photographer named Mark Weiss's wedding. Uh, John Bon Jovi's parents are there. Oh my god. He talks to John Bon Jovi's dad. He's like, hey, this is my favorite Bon Jovi song. I can't remember what, which song he says. John Bon Jovi's like, his dad is like, yeah, that's a good song. His, his parents suggest that he try out for his son's friend's band. This is Dave Sabo. Sabo? Uh, uh, Dave the Snake Dave Sabo. Dave the Snake yeah. Sabo from Skid Row. So this is how, so this is Sebastian Bach's in is because he met John Bon Jovi's parents at a rock photographer's wedding and they suggested he try out for Bon Jovi's friends band. This is how he gets into Skid Row, <laughs> which and he's still like, he's like 17. I it's, love the idea it's that wild. Ev- like there's this whole almost mafia like community in Jersey at this time where just instead of doing organized crime, they're doing hair metal. Yeah, well, Bon Jovi produced their first record. I know that much. So yeah. Like, yeah, the, the connection runs deep. There was a strong, yeah, Bon Jovi was in, integral to Skid Row's uh, success. And so he mo- he moves to New Jersey and he starts, he he gets the gig. And Skid Row, basically, they had some of their songs, most of their songs written for their debut album already. Sebastian Bach is basically just coming in. He doesn't play any instruments. Like he's just there to sing. And he, his beef here is that he actually contributed some songwriting, uh, changing some of the melodies or the notes to make fit his voice and make his voice a a better part of the song. He's never credited as a songwriter and boy, oh boy, he's not happy about this. And at every opportunity, he will remind you that he was actually part of the songwriting process of, of, Skid Row's songs and never, never got credit for it. I mean, it, uh, I, it, on one side, it's like funny that it's that, that these like grievances can carry on over decades and decades, but it's also like at least partially, or it is uh, understandable because of how like this, the payments that work from, if you get your name on the songwriting that that is yeah. like, even if he did minor work, like changing one melody line to get that, that credit is like per- perhaps millions of dollars. It'll set you up forever. Yeah. yeah. Of, of, of lost revenue in his life. Yeah, and definitely, like, none of the records that came after this one, like, I think approached anywhere near the level of commercial success as that, yeah. that yeah. self-titled debut. This so. was the one. 
Um, so yeah, that, that was the genesis of, of Skid Row. He definitely, I think he, I'm guessing the band, obviously you don't know the perspective of the band, but it seemed like he was feeling some tension about basically being like a hired gun in other books that I've read where it's true. Like bands truly come up together and are connected, you know, in a sort of brotherhood or sisterhood or whatnot. This is not that kind of situation. Uh, I, he never really talks about, you know, Rachel or, or Dave, the snake as, as truly brothers in arms. Um, so I think that that colors his perception of what, what being in Skid Row was like. So, so, but the other four of them, it's four, right? think so uh, i think they're yeah they're they were five piece because they had two guitar players yeah uh so the other four of them did write all of these songs mm-hmm. and like had them ready to go they just needed a vocalist on, on them yes uh should we listen to uh, a little I, I, it depends on who you believe there's <laughs> actually there's there is a controversy about this in that uh bon jovi had a hired songwriter named desmond child mm-hmm. who Good did name. a lot of uncredited writing and there are a lot of similarities and there were people who will uh swear that some of these are Desmond Child tunes. So, yeah. mm, I do. I do love a good song controversy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, should we get a little taste of 1989's yeah. album Skid Row? Yeah. I mean, 18 and in Life is the the big hit, but I feel like I want to go a little deeper. Jay, do you want to suggest a track off this you like? Oh, I'm trying to remember the other songs on the first Skid Row record. This 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 one wasn't really my record. <laughs> that, that's the next one. Well, let's like, how about let's listen to a little Youth Gone Wild. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, Youth Gone Wild. That's a good one. Great. See, by 1989, I feel like what this genre was had been so cemented in. That all these songs, even when they are some of the better songs, do sound a little interchangeable to to my ear. But, you know, I mean, you could say the same thing about, like, punk by the mid-80s, where there's, like, so many genre conventions that you just, like, they're all just, like, within a certain genre, like, punk songs, you know? Yes. Yeah, although this this song... um is one of my favorites because the lyrics do include the name of the band and that's, the entire band yells it at the same time, which is pretty awesome. That is, that's a, a crucial songwriting choice is, yeah. is connecting says, songs with the band name. I think he says, hey man, there's something you ought to know and I'll tell you Park Avenue leads to and then they all go, Skid Row. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I do like the gang vocals on this. Where everybody uh, yelled chants in the back background. You've gone whoa. <laughs> There's some good woos at the end too. There's a lot of good whoa woes. <laughs> I also did not know that this was a female bassist band, and almost no, every he's a dude. No, no, it's a man named Rachel. It's a dude oh, named, named Rachel. Rachel. Oh. I thought I had the same reaction when I saw it in the book. I was like, oh, Rachel, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was gonna say because virtually every female bassist band is a good is good a good band, band yeah. but also uh, I guess uh, dude named Rachel also cool. Equally yeah, dope. It was kind of around the same time as. Uh, God, what was it? Enough's enough. I think uh, <laughs> they had a drummer named. They called himself Vicky. Nice, <laughs> so. nice. Uh, yeah, this is a good. This is a good, uh, good classic uh, metal anthem. It's a bop. It's a bop. It's a bop. I would definitely I mean, put this on a, uh, a jukebox in a CD bar. 
For sure. And I mean, one thing about this this record is no matter how much you don't like the songs, they all have really good guitar solos. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's. I think it's very people-pleasing. It's like, you know, yeah. it, it rocks, but it doesn't rock you too hard. <laughs> it's not too scary. It just, it knows what you want. Yeah. You just want to rock. Yeah, good good commercial rebellion. Yeah. There's there's a line or two about how your boss sucks, <laughs> so that's like infinitely relatable. Yes. Oh, yeah. M- should be more music about how bosses work, suck. Work sucks. I, I know. know. Yes. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no one, no one sings songs about um, like having like a shitty job anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just straight. That's like not a part of like current pop music at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, you either have a lot of money or you just don't talk about it at all. Yes, that's true, and that fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> it's so shitty that that all pop music or all major like top forty songs have to uh, exist in this fantasy realm where. Work doesn't exist where where economic like the economic reality of life doesn't exist. Yeah. Everybody is fucking uh, uh what oh, god damn it, what is that Lord line? The the crystal gold crystal diamonds from hanging yeah. from a necklace. I mean she she's being a little tongue in cheek there, but that's about as best as you get. Yeah. Yeah, no. The songs about work sucking are, are relatable and awesome for a reason. And there so. should be a huge audience for that. And work sucks now more than ever. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Some Swedish producer makes some make an album about how work sucks. Sweet, the Swedish producer is like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, work is, is fine in Sweden. It's, uh, Sweden uh, we have a good social safety <laughs> net, uh, you know, I good health I, benefits. I, I and could, just giving us health care. I don't even need it. But we, we have a, a built in coffee break every day. Uh, <laughs> that's true, actually. <laughs> there's a Swedish, there's a Swedish custom called Fika, where you just get like coffee and eat pastries at like 3 p.m. at work every day. Yeah, well, that's why we don't hear more anti-work propaganda <laughs> in our uh, in our pop music here. Max Martin's like, I don't know what you're talking I, about. Yes, work has been a delight every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yes, Skid Row. They first album drops and it's immediately it, it's a massive hit. Although, so this is where we talk about the punk rock stuff. Sebastian is. I think he diff- he's kind of like edging himself away from the rest of the band because he's like, no, when living on Skid Row for me was living on Skid Row. He's like, I knew I hung out with real punk rockers in Toronto. Like he name checks a bunch of them. He's like, I know what it's like to live, to live hard and live on the edge. And like, I think these guys were kind of posers or like, I wanted them to be more real about it. Um, but like they're from New Jersey. They're- from New Jersey, right? They're all from New Jersey. Yes, I know New Jersey no, they, can be hardcore, but they probably spent a lot of time on the boardwalk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. It's straight out of the uh, Bon Jovi adjacent wedding band scene. The, yeah, and I, the on the ropes I, lifestyle of that. Yeah, I, I gotta say, like as cool as calling yourself Rachel and wearing a connected nose and earring <laughs> chain combo, it does sound a bit like an affectation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, he also just shares an anecdote where he's uh, totally overwhelmed by the idea of what baked ziti is. <laughs> he has never encountered it in Canada. He's like, Wait, you can what is this? Bake a ziti? <laughs> Shook. <laughs> Shook by baked ziti, Sebastian is. Um, so they go, they go on tour with, bon, they open for Bon Jovi. Um, that Bon Jovi nepotism um, runs strong. And 
then Sebastian starts having a little trouble, a little inter, interpersonal trouble. He has an incident where he, so he talks about he's a singer. He's got to keep his vocal cords moist. He's got to stay warmed up. He's got to warm up exactly one hour before the show. And then he has to finish the warm up a half an hour before the show. He uses a very specific technique to warm up. It's the same every time. Like, sorry to all the hotel people that I've stayed with because I've warmed up in hotels and I've been yelling and I'm sorry. He, he drinks water constantly and he has a giant bottle of Evian. He carries a <laughs> bottle of Evian with him all the time. He tries to get into a stadium uh, to open for Bon Jovi. He's carrying the Evian and cops stop him and they're like, that's vodka. <laughs> they're like, that's not water in that bottle. That's vodka. And Sebastian's like, no, it's water for my vocal cords. <laughs> and they're um, like, actually, sir, actually. And the cops are like, no, it's definitely vodka. And there's a little like yelling altercation and they stun gun him. Oh my God. They hit him with a stun gun. <laughs> there are like fans around, like waiting in line. They see him. They're like, that's Sebastian Bach. Let him in. Like he's got to <laughs> do his show. And so he his, uh, I think John Bon Jovi himself. He hears about this incident and he's like, Sebastian, don't say anything. And Sebastian's like, cool. And then he goes on stage and gets the entire stadium of like 20,000 people to chant fuck you at the cops. <laughs> oh, wow. The boy, cool. the That's boys cool. in blue. So like this is Sebastian's vibe on the road is like he's He's a troublemaker and also, you know, fuck the cops. So I think that's cool. They but tried to take his water. That water thing is absolutely going to happen someday with Virgil, Texas on our tours. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, that's 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 uh, not actually, water. This is uh, Fiji water. It is the best tasting water. <laughs> and I will drink half of it. <laughs> yes, I will drink it precisely half and then get another one. Yep. Um, so that happens. There's a prank war between um, Skid Row and Bon Jovi where uh, Sebastian receives a very unpleasant prank where the road crew for Bon Jovi, right before he's supposed to go on stage, they hold him down and they pour a jug of ice cold milk over oh, no. his head. They milk board him? They milk boarded him. He's incredibly upset. And then he, I think, goes and maybe tries to take a swing at someone. I forget how it ends. But like, he, it's, there's, it's volatile shit happening. <laughs> backstage this is like i've read a lot of biographies of of wrestlers as well mm -hmm. and this is that's like wrestler locker room shit <laughs> mm -hmm. it's very strange like dudes were weird in the 80s dudes were so weird it's so weird the, yeah where do you even find milk just get a like backstage at a rock concert and he's very <laughs> careful about saying like the milk was very cold this milk was a very cold <laughs> sir your milk is too cold uh, well, Bon Jovi's warm-up routine <laughs> consisted of two bowls of Rice Krispies, <laughs> uh, a big a big bowl of big ziti, and a, a tall glass of milk to wash I'm it gonna down. I'm going to start putting uh, a jug of ice cold milk on our tour rider. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, they so they they're Skid Row's huge. Like 18 and Life is a huge song. Um, I'll remember you was like their bit one of their biggest songs, uh, which Sebastian says like he he advocated for, even though it was a ballad. Um, and the rest of the band members were like, eh, I don't know if we want to like release it as single. He's I, like, let's do it, and it becomes like the biggest prom song of 1990. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that oh, that God. song was ubiquitous. Like I'm I'm of an age where uh, I was listening to a lot of rock radio at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And I think like every three or four songs you would hear, I remember you. I yeah. would love, I would love to get a uh, fueled recording of a of a prom in 1990, uh, just to like hear the playlist and and just overhear what the convos were like. Yeah, 
Uh, was more than words by extreme out then? <laughs> oh, that might have been around the same time. See, I was going to might have been a couple years later, but yeah, yeah, that's w- the same, same, same vibe. I was also going to say at the beginning, my associations for Skid Row is very much. I don't know if you guys remember one of the the latter like CD compilations that they would a- advertise on TV of is the uh, Monster Ballads, and that was very oh, yeah. much what I consider Skid Row is like. Oh yeah, that's a Monster Ballads band. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, I mean, it's a perfect prom song. The lyrics are literally, you know, remember yesterday walking hand in hand, love letters in the sand. I remember you through the sleepless nights, through every endless day. I'd want to hear you say, I remember you. I, remember <laughs> you. I just like it because it, it, it acknowledges like, you know, the transience of, of high school and the ephemeral nature of, of youth, youthful love connections. And it was, it was, I'll remember you. We're not going to stay together, but, but I'll um, remember you. I'll remember you. It was not until Green Day came along and said it's something unforgettable, <laughs> but in the end, it's fine. Yep. I hope you have the time of your life before somebody except was like, that. finally, another way to say, it's been great. It's See been you great. Never. Yeah. <laughs> except the Green Day one was about heroin, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't about uh, the last day of summer camp because that uh, is yeah. the only way it's ever been used since. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know how, how these things are going to to evolve. Um, yeah, they, I'm looking at the track listing of, of that Skid Row right now, album right now, and like all of these songs are coming back to me in like a giant like... Johnny mnemonic kind of like brain dump. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. You're just like, getting like I, I various for- like sense memories of, of those that like summer coming back at you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like rattlesnake shake. Oh, boy. That was a good one. <laughs> amazing. We're um, listening to a little bit of I Remember You right now. It's a jam. <laughs> People love their ballads. I don't know. Not just ballads in general. I think you can't underestimate the kind of basicness of music taste in that. People just want a, a slower, wistful song to just remember stuff to. And well, the thing about I Remember You, too, is it's almost the same song as Every Rose Has Its Thorn. It's like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> See, that's it's what like I'm like saying. It's like the, 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 <laughs> the metal at this time had, had reached a design pinnacle where they were like, we can just do one of these. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, a bot, a bot will listen to seventeen thousand hair metal uh, b- yes. ballads and spit one out. Yes. And it'll basically sound the same. Yes. Yeah. I remember, I remember every thorn. <laughs> <laughs> that song will be called "Ouch" and in parentheses, <laughs> "I remember every thorn." <laughs> um, Skid Row, they they play with Motley Crue, they play with Aerosmith, they play this. Um, gigantic Moscow uh, stadium show, which was obviously, you know, at, at the time, and I guess it was 1990, it was uh, just Directly a, before. Yeah, a new dawn for Russia. Yeah. They said He said that, and Bon Jovi played this show too, and apparently the payments for this show were so weird that Bon Jovi got paid in like wood, like timber, <laughs> that they then sold in America. I... <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian Bach said it. I don't know how true it is, but he said there was a rumor that they they got paid in wood instead of instead of cash. It's commodities got, trading for rock music. They got paid with special tokens you have to exchange with members of the Scorpions for, <laughs> for, for Boardwalk Midway prizes. Right. Oh no, I'm sorry. We don't have any cash with us, but we do have lots of wood. Yes. In case you're interested. Who was the oh, who was the Russian hair metal band? Gorky Park. That Ooh, was it. Yeah, Ooh. they played that. They played there. That that was I'm, one of I, the. Ooh, is there shows we should I would love to if we can get a document I would love to do a show one day on uh, the popular music of the Soviet Union yeah that would be great um, 
Ooh, yeah. Here, here comes the hammers. Here's the hammers. Uh, bang, bang. He also said um, uh, he loved playing with Aerosmith. He said Aerosmith loved girls. They didn't sing those lyrics just for fun. That, <laughs> that was the way they felt in their hearts and in their pants. <laughs> Aerosmith are the real deal. And I love that to know that there is a sincerity behind the, the lyrics to Aerosmith. Yeah, they really do. They really feel that way in their pants. Um, <laughs> Steven Tyler actually fucked in an elevator, dude. I can't believe it. <laughs> dude, you know that song is real? <laughs> Based on he actually was movie. crying when he left you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's so Sebastian at this point, he's like in his early 20s. He, there's obviously, you know, mountains of cocaine. There's a lot of Jack. He calls out Jack Daniels as a particularly devilish brand of liquor for him. He says he had to stop drinking Jack Daniels at some point because it just inspired him to do to do crazy I things. Feel like, yeah. Again, like in terms of just like weird shift of brand brand preferences, like the 80s, like the only whiskey that was it seems seemingly was even available was Jack Daniels. Yeah. And it, when was the last time you have heard somebody request to Jack Daniels by name? Um, the last time I visited my family in Florida. <laughs> there you go. Sure. When I, when I was you, first you, drinking, I would get Jack Daniels. Yeah. Jack like that Coke was probably one of the first like bottles of liquor that I like purchased for myself because I thought it did have a, a patina of rock like authenticity. Yeah, yeah. And I was interested in that. It yeah. tastes fine it's fine i prefer jameson now (laughs) i figured it out but yeah um he jack daniels drives drives sebastian bach insane he recounts the night out so this is where he starts getting sort of scene gossipy um he he goes out he he becomes friends with axel rose um and this is an important friendship for sebastian bach i think he thinks that axel is incredibly cool and like mysterious yes. and yes. crazy. Yeah. Yes. And they're both actually punk rock. Actually yes. punk rockers. Yep. Uh, and so they go out one night with David Lee Roth. Okay. And wow, no. this is, a, this is a, a, a trouble trio. So David Lee Roth, he says he keep David Lee Roth keeps taking shots of Jack Daniels. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, like they're at the rainbow room, I think in LA and they're, they're getting a little sloshy. And he says, after a few drinks, David Lee Ross says, it looks like I got a couple pretenders to my throne sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> and Axel was like, what did you say? And David Lee Roth is like, a couple of pretenders to my throne. <laughs> I, I only hope that this story ends in them doing a heavy metal scream off. Oh, um, it was, <laughs> no. they were about to rumble. And I don't think it ended in fisticuffs, but uh, Axel was not happy. And he basically like stormed out. He's like, I'm not pretending to anybody's throne. <laughs> David Lee Roth. I sit in my own throne. Well, actually, actually, it's Dave Grohl's throne, but uh, uh, yeah. I'll sit in it for now. He's a pretender to Grohl, the Grohl throne. I also think that uh, uh, basically any story you hear from this or maybe any era that it takes place in L.A. and anything called the whatever room is not good. Yeah. Don't go yeah. to L.A. places called the. The, the blank, blank room. room. They're all basically just the cocaine room. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking all of the tables were made of mirrors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the tables were made of mirrors. The walls were made of mirrors. The floor was made of mirrors. It was actually incredibly confusing. You yeah. could not see where you were going. <laughs> and there was a supervillain taunting me the whole time. <laughs> it was like it was basically like the end of John Wick too. Yes, exactly. But with more cocaine. Yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, speaking of cocaine, uh, he Sebastian says he really enjoys partying with Metallica, um, who he calls Alcoholica. Uh, 
And he plays. Uh, they used to call themselves that. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched um, some kind of monster for the first time. I don't really know a lot about Metallica, and I think this was kind of an interesting entree. I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it in a yeah. later podcast. But God, those guys are weird. <laughs> That that's like one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Yeah. It's pretty incredible, especially the the interviews with uh, Lars Ulrich's dad, where he like kind of looks like a weird wizard. Yes, and is basically like this album isn't very good. Yes, he's like, oh, if I were to listen to this al- song, I would say delete this. <laughs> and Lars was like, oh, it's funny that you say that, Dad, because uh, someone else thought we should start the record with it. And the dad was just like, no. <laughs> this, uh, that sounds like it was the inspiration for the very cold uh, Swedish family in, in uh, Death Clock. In Death Clock. Yes. You're so right. Um, yeah, he he likes play, he, he parties with Metallica. Lars Ulrich, they play tennis together um, and do a bunch of cocaine <laughs> on a mountaintop. Uh, he says, a bunch of booze, mountains of blow, and tennis. That's how we rolled back in 1990. <laughs> One of these things is not like yes, the other. Exactly. you know i'm really into shooting up and listening to hard rock and then i really enjoy squash (laughs) yeah you play play a stadium show uh for you know a couple ten thousand people uh party do blow until 4 a.m and then you know make sure you get a good six hours of sleep for your 10 a.m uh racquetball appointment yeah yeah look guys we can party pretty hard, but I got a 6 a.m. tea time. So. <laughs> I'm also just imagining them in all their like fucking tight leather pants and like, you know, red and pink leopard print, whatever. And then rolling out of bed and ter- putting on like pressed white docker shorts and uh, a polo shirt and ro- going down to the club. Gotta Do you think? Or maybe the they had like really flamboyant, cool tennis outfits. <laughs> like a leather yeah. a leather tennis suit. <laughs> just leather yeah. tennis shorts. Yeah. Oh, God. Think of, <laughs> think of how Leather like hot be. pants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Oh, God. Um, so this is... This is the point where the book kind of goes goes off the rails a little bit. So he talks about recording Slave to the Grind. Once again, he gives some creative input on songs Fucking that goes name for an album. unnoticed. Um, he references Monkey Business as one song that he uh, influenced in some way. Do you want to play just a little snippet of Monkey yeah. Business? You got to at least play it until it starts rocking. Yeah. Because it starts out all bluesy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy, they, they flipped the script. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you, you can tell he's, he's building some kind of situation here. Here we go. Oh yeah, this rules. This sounds a lot more Guns, Guns N' Rosey. Rosie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. He was definitely hanging out with Axel Rose at the time. I really like his voice. Yeah. I, this album I still listen to. Really? I I admit that with very little shame. There there are some really good songs on this record. Okay, what's a good uh, what's a good uh, uh, like J Rec uh, um, B side on this? Um, the title track for sure, "Slave to the Grind" right. is awesome. Let's, it let's actually sounds like a punk song. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, they turned up the BPMs on this. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, this is uh, this is this is some good like uh, uh, motorcycle bar music. Yeah, this is this was like also around the same time I was like getting pretty proficient at playing guitar, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the tablature book for it, so I would like play along with this at very loud volumes, and I'm really surprised that you know I didn't get kicked out of the house. <laughs> so, just like fumbling around trying to play the solos, and stuff. <laughs> like doing the chords really proficiently and being like, yeah, I'm pretty good at guitar, and then the solo kicks in, you're yeah. like, oh no, I'm not. <laughs> There is also a song on this album called Get the Fuck Out, and it was the first album I had with the F word on it, so that was a pretty big moment in my life, yeah. too. That's always very exciting. Yeah. But there's Slave to the Grind, there's Living on a Chain Gang, there's Riot Act, there's at least three different songs on this about how blue-collar work life sucks. Amazing. So, Amazing. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's also, I mean, he, Sebastian, is this, his mom is a nurse. But his dad is an artist. It's not like he necessarily came from... His, his dad is dad an art like, professor. go down to the art factory and have to punch in for eight hours a day. Hey, may- maybe... You know, that's a really good point. Like, cause, yeah, he went he went right into music. I wonder if this is just like a Jersey thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, well, we're from Jersey, so we got to do the Springsteen yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. shit. Yeah, or, yeah. The, wor- the working people. I, th- I, I definitely think he was influenced by that. But I think if you ask Sebastian Bach, he would tell you that, like, touring... And you know, grinding that out is virtually the same as like clocking into a Seven Eleven. I could see that. Yeah. yeah, he'd be like, "No, it's hard work. It's hard work, man." I don't really know what his talking voice is like, <laughs> <laughs> but I think his his voice is incredible. Like, I think he he knows it too. But does Sebastian Bach have the range? He might have the range. I don't know if he, he does. does. Yeah, go ahead. But- he does, but the problem is, is like you said, he's one of those singers that knows it too well. Yeah. Um, like, there were a lot of bands in this era where, you know, you'd pull out the high note occasionally, whereas, like, he kind of lived in that high register, yeah. <laughs> and it makes it a little tiring after a while. Yeah. Yep. It, when he's not screaming, he's, like, full, like, falsetto wail all yeah. the time. Maybe that was his input in the studio, and it was just incredibly infuriating to his bandmates of just everyone be like, okay, we'll do we'll do the bridge, uh, and then we'll knock out the chorus, and Sebastian would be like, hey, guys, what if I just went, wow! <laughs> And everyone's like, shut the fuck up, Sebastian. One octave higher. Yeah. (laughs) What if I did one of my screams again? Oh, yeah, sure, Sebastian, whatever. Sounds fine. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is so the. The, the book starts, I had a very jarring experience reading this book because he starts to put in these notes that in my Kindle edition were highlighted in like gray. And there, it looks like notes to himself about how to finish the book. Um, so like one of them says, it's just a bullet point list and it says, eating pussy with Matt, too high to fuck in Germany, slashes house nude boxing, Iceland getting in fight coming down from ecstasy, Fighting on Jack, I assume he means Daniels, and then just in all caps, Pantera tour. <laughs> and well, so that, that's that's actually the track list of their next record. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, too high to fuck in Germany sounds like it would be an amazing song, um, but I feel like Jonathan Richmond would have sang it or somebody a lot more like plodding and uh, yeah. and melancholy. But um, so I then was like. Did I get a review copy? Like, is this the is this the advanced? Like, did he not finish this? Well, what the fuck is going on? I Google it. I was I don't know what I Googled exactly, but the AV Club wrote about this when the book came out in late 2016 that they thought that they received an uncorrected proof that had unfinished passages. Then they oh, updated wow. that story and they were like, oh. 
a publicist for the book reached out and said, no, that's on purpose. <laughs> so he just didn't finish the book? He, there are some of the most like insane sounding anecdotes that don't get any, any further description other than getting bullet pointed in this book. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's that's, the most random thing I've ever seen. That's really bizarre. There's one of the, there's one of the things one anecdote where he's he's talking about getting in a fight with his wife at the time and then there's a little bullet point and it says should I continue the story I end up in jail. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. I like the, I like that this in one way it just seems like he just got tired of writing the book and turned it in and was like this is enough. But in another way it kind of do- delves into like David Foster Wallace and like <laughs> intertextual uh, interplay and like creating tension between like the footnotes. Oh my God. It's It's a meta text. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's just Pomo. I mean, also it is to his credit, like most of these memoirs are ghost written. And if if that shit is happening, he probably did actually write it himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, Oh, I'm just tired. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. That's it. Yeah. I was, I found that I've never in the many books that I've now read for this podcast. I've never seen anything like that before. That's amazing. Um, so then he has a bunch of these little anecdotes. He, by 1996, he has been kicked out of Skid Row or rather he and Skid Row have parted ways. Um, like all of these breakup stories, it's sort of unclear what actually happened, but it sounds like Sebastian wasn't wasn't happy with some musical choices by the band, voiced that. Uh, also, the band was getting less popular because the sound of of Skid Row by the early to mid-90s was obviously being overtaken by stuff like grunge. Um, he said that they were playing at 4,000-person venues for less than 1,000 people um, by the <sighs> end of his tenure oh. there, which is a huge bummer uh, when he, they used to be playing for, for arenas. Um, and he says, ultimately, Jealousy ultimately came between us as a people. (laughs) (laughs) I like saying as a people because it's not just like the band got jealous. It was like, no, no, no. It's the jealousy of society that tore the band apart. (laughs) It's the tribe of Skid Row. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, do you have any like other kind of insider or fan intel of like what what ended Skid Row? Honestly speaking, like Slave to the Grind came out in 91. I think by like 92 or 93, I had discovered actual punk music. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't paying a, a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But there I do go. know that the record they put out after Slave to the Grind was like a B-Sides cover that was mostly, or a B-Sides album that was mostly covers of like Judas Priest and Kiss and the Ramones. And there's a Rush song on it. And, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I think... I'm just guessing here, but my guess is that like when you get to the point where you're putting out an album of covers, you've you're kind of hit your creative nad- nadir as yes. it yeah. was, you know. Yeah. So. You've said everything yeah. that you could So they really say. only had the two al- two albums in them. Yeah. Well, they I mean they went on to record a a, cu- a couple albums without him, um but that wasn't until like the 2000s. So <laughs> oh my god. Uh yeah, he and I think it's also I don't know. It's I. It, it's, it seems to be a confluence of things, but I, it never sounded like they truly, truly gelled as a band, at least with Sebastian, with the rest of them. But he gets a new gig uh, shortly. He he does a solo tour um, and makes them just screaming. Yeah, <laughs> just screaming alone. alone. <laughs> just holding an acoustic guitar, but not playing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then his his next gig it kind of changes his life where he he's a celebrity replacement for the um the Jekyll Hyde Hyde role in the Broadway musical 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde yes. in oh, the wow. year 2000. So that's his first theater role. And he, he says he loves it. It's amazing. His, his most difficult uh, aspect of being in the show is that he doesn't know how to sit still on stage. <laughs> He's used to just like running around, waving his arms, like getting the fans riled up. And the fact that he sometimes just has to like sit still and like be a person who's acting is completely uh, foreign to him. <laughs> I want to hear you get wild. <laughs> <laughs> and he can't Can look, I, uh, he can't even look at the, like he can't be playing to the audience either, which is something <laughs> it's the only thing he's ever known. And he has to get that basically like deprogrammed from him. It's like, can, can I jump back for a second? Yeah. yeah. I, I was, I was just curious about why they broke up. I'm really surprised he doesn't tell this story in the book because apparently the reason he left the band is they were offered to open for Kiss. Yes, he does Rachel talk Boland about that. And Rachel turned it down yes. because they thought that they were too big to open for a band. Yes. And so he quit because he didn't get to play with Kiss, which Aww. is fucking he, awesome. He, yeah. does, he does mention that. Uh, and he said he's basically just like, I don't know why these people wouldn't want to play with Kiss because they're my number one heroes. Like you're never going to be too big to open for Kiss. Who doesn't want to play with Kiss in 1997? (laughs) (laughs) So there's a, there's a whole nother like Kiss segment, which I didn't even really get into, but it's basically that Sebastian is asked to write, help co-write songs with um, Ace Frehley, um, which he says is like, obviously his dream come true. He drives in a blizzard to go record at Ace's house. <laughs> Anything for you, Ace. Like in I'm a, coming. He's like, he goes there. He does like huge mountains of cocaine with him. He says that Ace is like not a very creative songwriter and that Sebastian was really doing most of the work. And then the songs kind of fell into the abyss. I think this was around the, the late 90s. Yes. And then Kiss later not in a great place. Later on, his song actually comes out and he's not credited. No. It's just I'm Ace. I'm a trend here. Yeah, and, this guy and, is, cannot and I catch a break. The, yeah. Uh, it's either that or I think he overestimates his own input <laughs> quite considerably. Yes. Perhaps a, perhaps a little bit of both. <laughs> yes. But he and he says like could I have, you know, pursued legal action against Ace for not including my contributions? Yes, but it would be like suing Santa Claus. Aww. Like you just don't he's like they're kids are my heroes. They're always going to be my heroes. I could never do something like that to them. So he well, that's, loves Kiss. That's very forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Especially because from everything that I, I have read, uh, Kiss are not nice or generous guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen way too much of Gene Simmons in the past yes. decade or so. And yeah, I don't think I would do anything nice for him. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I would be extremely vindictive if Kiss did anything to, to screw me over. Um, so he he has his Broadway career. He does a little Kiss writing on the side. He... Loves loves theater. He ends up doing um, Rocky Horror. He'd be, th- that'd be awesome. I, I think he's Fra- I think he's Frankenfurter in Rocky Horror. I can't Ooh, remember what which yeah, character he was. That would, be, that would make total sense. That would be perfect. Yeah, that'd be a, a very different energy from from what we know from the movie. But I think that could totally rip. And then he does Jesus Christ Superstar. He leaves the touring group of Jesus Christ Superstar After because Jesus Christ Superstar refuses to open for Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god no it's he has tensions with the actor who plays judas oh no well i mean judas is actually the star of of that show so i could imagine him being like yes i'm going to be jesus the star of jesus christ superstar and then being like oh actually this is, show is mostly about judas's journey 
uh, and being like, well, this is bullshit. Yeah. He gets in a few barbs about like, oh, actually, Jesus doesn't really sing that much. And like, yep. maybe, maybe uh, but he there was issues with taking bows in the order of which they took bows uh, in that oh he was God. getting way more applause. And he came out last, I guess. And then the actor who was playing Judas was like, no, I want to come out last or like, I don't want him to get so much applause. There was some just weird ego stuff going on. And he yep. Sebastian was like. I'm done. You know, I've never missed a show. Like I've done this for like nine months or something. And I've showed up every day and I'm tired. <laughs> he just goes back to New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, I have to bring this up because I love, I love that he like adopts Jersey as a, a second. Like that's where he goes back to home. because he is like, no matter where he was born or raised, he is spiritually New Jersey, New Jerseyan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have to bring this up because it, you know, uh, I don't always bring up when an artist acknowledges 9-11 in a memoir because it, it usually... happens in all of them. <laughs> it happens in basically all of them that, you know, were written after 9-11. So, and most of the reactions are, are basically the same. Uh, but this is by far the most insane reaction to 9-11 that I've ever seen in a rock memoir. Uh, Sebastian is in New Jersey when he hears that it happened. And instead of like watching, he, he heard on some, he was driving and he heard on a news channel that nuclear war was going, was coming to America that like the next step of this that was imminent was people dropping nuclear bombs on the, you know, in the, the Metro area. And okay, so, so he, Sebastian Bach listens to Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> yes. He immediately, he drives, he, he tries to get his kids out of school. Um, they like, won't, they're like, no, we're not going to let the kids out. Uh, we're just going to try to keep them calm. He like forcibly gets them to bring the kids out. And he says, we pointed the car toward Canada. Like, he's like, we are going to drive the fuck out of here. He, oh, and he stops home where there are men working on his house, like doing construction on his house. And he tells the construction workers, guys, it's the end of the world. There's, you know, nuclear war is imminent. Everybody go home. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and he he dri he tries to go to Canada so for some reason like that doesn't work out. And so he drives to pencil like rural Pennsylvania and goes to a motel with his kids. And he says, you know, it actually ends up being kind of a kind of a nice night with my kids. <laughs> but then someone made fun of him. They were like, dude, you drove from basically where the World Trade Center was to like near where Flight 93 crashed. <laughs> like, yeah, what the fuck I is wrong with you? I was just thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he, I've never seen anyone have such a, uh, any rock memoir have such a violently strong reaction to 9 11. So, question. Um, I know like these memoirs almost always contain like a lengthy passage about uh, sobriety and the obtaining thereof. Was he sober at this point? That is, is a great still... question. I don't know if he ever gets sober. He, so he, at, at certain. That, that sounds like cocaine logic. To yes, me. <laughs> you're 100% correct. He, at certain points throughout the memoir, says, this is when I stopped doing this substance. But it will literally be like, this is when I quit Jack Daniels. This is when I stopped drinking red wine because it made me too horny. I love... I love <laughs> I love the quitting of alcohol brand by brand. Brand by brand. Um, and he says, like, at a certain point, he's like, cocaine sucks. I fucking hate cocaine. It makes me act ridiculous. Or, like, speed. I stopped doing speed because speed just makes me say I love you to whoever I'm with for, like, hours on end until they, like, kick me nice. out. Yeah, he has a really uh, a lovey-dovey reaction to speed. But I, he never, I don't think he's 
gone to rehab. And I don't think he's ever really given up any of these substances. There's no there's no recovery narrative at all, because I don't think he thinks he has a problem, even though he's wildly intoxicated for a lot of this book. I can tell you, like, one of the most frequent things I hear from people I know who do a lot of cocaine is, cocaine sucks, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Those two are not mutually exclusive. Yes. And I think, I actually think that he had given up cocaine when he um, was writing songs with Ace. And Ace was like, you want some cocaine? And he was like, yes, I do. You're Ace Freely. Yes. I, w- I would like to do cocaine with one of my I one of my rock heroes. How could I say no? How could I say no? <laughs> yeah, Can there- I have a hug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely no there's there's the acknowledgement that substances contribute to things that he does, such as you know being really angry or being really doing things that are really stupid. He definitely ends up on hotel rooftops or balconies, like try, locked out of his room, trying to get back in he, he several times. He literally has the plot of The Hangover happen to him. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's no acknowledgement that he has any kind of like significant addiction. Yeah. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, because I, I think even Slash ends up going to N.A. at some point. He does, yeah. Most <laughs> yeah. most of these people end up going to rehab. So that was that was a great question. I, I had forgotten to even mention because I feel like I... Uh, he he never really acknowledges that there was any anything to acknowledge. Yeah, just the, the the whole like holy fuck, nuclear war is coming. I better get my kids out of the school and drive for six hours to a hotel in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, just to me sounds like that doesn't sound like the thought of a sober man. Yeah, nope. So. Yeah, you're so right. Um, so then the other the other animating force of like his his later creative years is um his house gets destroyed in hurricane irene his new jersey home and this is right after his marriage has finally broken up after Ooh. like 25 years of having sex with other women um, I he's, he was married to that woman for so long that is so long. that is the the mind-boggling part to yeah. me but that also that often occurs in these books of like this has come up like three or four times now where it's like i got married at 20 or 19 or whatever and then no reference to the wife until like and then 20 years later we got divorced we got divorced but like you know 20 years worth of shit happening in between where that person is just like not present in their lives right he didn't take her to the motel no no he did not Maybe that's why they got divorced yeah oh that's a deal breaker yes um, you're not gonna save me from the nuclear wa- weapons <laughs> deal breaker yeah uh she's not bunker status <laughs> um so the uh, his house gets destroyed in Hurricane Irene, and he basically says in the book, he's like, I'm still not over it. It's been, you know, six, almost six years at that point. He's like, I'm not over it. It really, like, it, to- it was like a part of me. And his reaction to this is he couch surfs amongst his friends and associates for four years. What? He lives with his friend and their kids for two years. He hangs out with Matt Sorum from The Cult and uh, and Guns N' Roses. Roses. Yeah. He, he sleeps on his couch for a while. And like this four years, grown ass man. He's like his mid 40s at this point. Yeah. Again, does not seem like totally cogent uh, decision making. No. And that that house is very symbolic. I yeah. Think. yeah. 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 That that was his. uh his uh, talisman of maturity or something. Yes. I don't know. And then when that got, got struck down, he was like, well, my entire life is just being an itinerant songsmith now. Crazy. Yep. And then he also, in his later years, he, he does get into reality TV. Um, he's in, uh, his own vehicle, which is called Forever Wild. 
He's in a oh, show God. called. Have you ever seen this? Uh, no, no. I, I like the last thing I heard about him doing was Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. I mean, I remember very clearly this era of VH1, the Matryoshka doll of VH1, where they like started doing the reality programming and then made new shows about the people who were on the original shows and yeah. then made new people about who, new shows about the people on those shows like all the way down until it was like sixth generation reality TV shows about the people who are just in the VH1 stable. I found it very weird at the time, but this is of that era of VH1. Yeah. And now we have Cardi B. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, out of, yes, out of that entire grinder, one emerged and it is, yeah, Car- and I mean, Cardigan Barty dope. Yeah, she is pretty so, dope. No, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that, you know, musicians became personalities and then we had a sort of personality stew, a sort of personality gumbo for several years. And then out of that comes musicians now. Yes. I think that's super cool. I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure it's the signaling of something something kind of fucked up, but I I don't know. I think Cardi B's story is amazing. I'm 100% rooting for Cardi B all the time. Well, she's also a great MC, but I just was reminded of when Sharon Osbourne made an album and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I I I I too also. We can all agree on Cardi B, but I will also maintain that fucking like Rock of Love and I Love New York were some of absolute nadirs of popular culture of the last decade or so. There was some was high the, high points and low points. High points are the, high, low points are low. <laughs> what was the Brent Michaels one? Was that Rock of Love? I think Rock, that was of, Rock love. of Love. Yeah. 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 Um, that, where he wore like a whole Hogan bandana the whole time so you <laughs> yes. wouldn't see his bald spot. Yes. 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 Classic. Great move. And then this was also around the time that like all the nostalgic countdowns and I love the eighties and I love the nineties and all that stuff was yeah, yeah. coming back to. So I think it was a real yeah. real funky, funky chili of of nostalgia yeah um yeah so he was in forever wild which i guess was just like he was a host and he interviewed rock musicians like it was pretty much like a talk show he was in super group which was about forming a super group um ted nugent was on that show oh god and sebastian bach said he loved he loved ted nugent loved his music but ted nugent freely used the n-word uh during tapings and there were 100 unsurprising and there were several black crew members and Sebastian Bach went to the producers and was like, Ted can't say that shit. Like, that's extremely not cool. <laughs> oh, and Jesus. the producers I mean, I told you, Ted Nugent that he had to stop using the N-word while he was shooting. And then Sebastian said that those crew members, when he did his like eighth or ninth VH1 show, he like somehow reconnected with them. And they were like, thanks, dude. Like, no one, no one else said anything. Like, we really appreciate that. So I think that is a nice, nice sense of allyship from from Sebastian Bach. Yeah. Yes. Well, you got to do something for making up for that T-shirt, which we haven't talked about. Wait, so. yeah, talk about the T-shirt because I don't think he mentions it in the book at all. Oh, well, I don't blame him, but uh, yeah, he was caught on camera after a show at the height of their popularity wearing a shirt with a, a very homophobic slur and the phrase "AIDS kills blanks dead." Yes. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. that became like a pretty huge controversy at the time. So yeah. I feel like maybe he spent a lot of his life after that maybe trying to make up for it. 
Yeah, um, trying to do a little. Because he does seem honestly like contrite. Like even just a couple years afterwards, when people would interview him about it, he's he'd say stuff like, "I was a dumb kid. I don't support homophobia. You know, it's actually really fucked up that I had that shirt." Yada yada yada. Yeah, yeah I'm but, looking at pictures of it now. It is a extremely bad shirt. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't mention it in his book, but I can kind of see why he might want to erase it from his history. Yeah, yeah. not put that in ink. He also, I mean, he's, I think, he, he talks about how, you know, he says racism is simply abhorrent to me. That's that's the way he puts it. He also does make a really bad, um, a really bad sort of transphobic joke when he says he met his wife. He was wearing uh, more makeup than Caitlyn Jenner at a Kanye West concert. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. And so, so like, like no, he's one of these guys who will keep saying dumb shit until somebody points out it's dumb. And then he gets really sorry about it. That is that's totally right. He will. He's I, he will never know this stuff in advance. He will be sorry once he realizes it was done, but he's never going to realize why these things are a bad idea in the first place. Uh, yes. And I guess to their credit, to, to his credit, that's not the worst kind of guy you can be. You yeah. Know? I mean, at least he's apologetic after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> like Ted Nugent, who spent like the past 15 years getting called an ignorant dipshit and continuing to be one. <laughs> he, so. Ted, Ted Cruz is the, the manifestation of the drill, drill tweet of uh, keep telling me my, my opinion suck asshole. It's only going to make them worse. <laughs> Yeah, you said Ted Cruz, but yeah. there's not that much of a difference. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, Except uh, I think Ted Nugent's probably better with a bow and arrow. Yes, so. true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's his little little social message near the end of this book. Um, we, we can we can kind of wrap his story with what he he says at the end of the book. I always like to use people's platitudes at the end. He says. <laughs> Um, his friends say there's something about Sebastian. He can go through all sorts of crazy shit, be shot out of a cannon and end up landing on his feet with his hands in the air saying, Hey, what the fuck is up? <laughs> I would like to see him enter stage for a show like that. I like to imagine that's a literal event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he says he, he thanks his, his current wife, Suzanne, which I feel like every rock man ends up married to a Suzanne <laughs> in their in That's, their 40s yeah. or something. Yeah, their first wife is like a candy. <laughs> yeah. And then they end up with a Suzanne. That so. is that's yeah, that's it. Uh, he says uh, my wife, Suzanne, gives me the foundation and grounding I need to do what I was put here to do, to rock, to scream, to go wild. She gives me the energy I need to bring the rock around the world to you. I believe that rock and roll is forever. I believe that's how he ends the book. Cool. Cool. With the share song title. Yeah. <laughs> I believe. Oh. So he br- he brings it all all back to the the visceral power of rock and roll music. Well, I mean, there's nothing more life changing than you know some gated reverb on a snare drum. <laughs> <and a glass. laughs> Amazing. Uh, I don't know. He seems like a pretty cool dude. I mean, compared to uh, the subjects of a lot of these yeah. books that I've read, like from what I'm hearing, he definitely comes off as a little more grounded than your average uh, rock and roll yeah. vocalist. Um, yeah, it's definitely not like Jim Morrison levels of detestable. So that's like, yes. all, it's a low bar to clear, <laughs> but that's always positive. Well, so. I, I mean, there could be stuff that that you left out, but it, it seems that he doesn't that he didn't actively abuse or cause the abuse of 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 most people he met yeah uh it seems like he lacks a certain sense of of a particular aggrievement that that i think is a a a symbol of the the more detestable rock 
superstars of like these things that are these things that have happened that are bad to me are like a conspiracy against me, which is yeah. more, which yeah. is mostly how like the kiss guys come off. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I had no idea he was so young and yeah. like most of the really stupid shit that he did happened before he, he was like even 20. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not an excuse, but it it is interesting. I was not aware of that at all. Yeah. yeah if you think of him, I mean like Ju- Justin Bieber got famous when he was like 12, but if you think of him on like a Justin Bieber level of like you're in the public eye at the age of like 17 to 20, yes, you're going to do some dumb shit because your brain hasn't really fully grown into your, your skull. And yet. also you're feeding it sub- a lot of substances. And you're feeding it a ton of substances that also yeah. doesn't help. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sebastian seemed basically like very earnest and sweet and kind of guileless as well as a little bit stupid and destructive. And, you know, I yeah. think he he's kind of oops all id. Like everything is <laughs> everything. There's no filter. It's just kind of like really what you see is what you get. And he's also like an incredibly, an incredible looking specimen. Like, he's an yeah. extremely pretty man. He's an extremely pretty man, and he never really mentions it. Like, he never mentions his looks in the book, other than to say, like, oh, yeah, I'm really tall, or, like, oh, yeah, my hair was really tall. Uh, but, like, he's he was a he's a hot dude, and I feel like he he could be a lot he could have been a worse asshole than he was for for the way he looked. I don't know. I guess one of the other things I'm thinking about is that at, by time Skid Row comes in in, like, 89, the whole world of these hair bands had really like built up even within an already a music industry that already creates like huge venues of permissionness permission and 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 mm-hmm. you know vectors to to just be totally irresponsible by these guys then there's the sub scene of the hair scene which is also just like a total world of built for the permission of debauchery uh, that he did his own bad shit, but for coming in that late in the game and going through that gauntlet of debauchery, he seemed to come out more or less okay, which is, how am I trying to say this? It's almost admirable in its own way to not be, come out of that kind of thing as just like a total skis, schizoid of asshole. A man, yes. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like anyone from Motley Crue now, like yeah. Vince Neil or whatever, like they're detestable human beings. Right. Yes. And yeah, yeah, he does... Managed to escape somewhat unscathed, it seems like. Yeah. yeah. I do also like his, his small second career on Broadway. I think that that is a, a good trajectory for, for rock stars who have aged out of rock. Let's hope he well, plays actually, Jean Valjean next. That'd be awesome. <laughs> it actually surprised me in this book. Like, I thought for sure he was a theater kid that got into rock. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. That was kind of surprising. Yeah. You touched on it a bit, Molly, but how was this, while, while we have Jay here, how was this as a book? It was, I mean, there there were definitely parts of it that were straight up bad in that I, I don't think bullet points of all the, <laughs> the crazy stories that you never elaborate on are necessarily the best way to tell a story. Um, and it was, it, it was a little all over the place. I think it lacked a, a solid editor. There was at one point in the middle of the book, he recalls going on a jog because he really likes to run, going on a jog in California and scaring a a dachshund that was off its leash like into the woods and just feeling awful about it and this was just out of the blue not connected to anything just saying how bad he felt that he had surprised a a tiny weenie dog and And possibly lost it and possibly lost it forever from its owner uh so like that's what the book is like it's it's super random there's definitely a trajectory um but it was never not entertaining it was just a little it was a little all over the place 
I just like I like to imagine him waking up in the middle of the night and being like, "Oh shit, I forgot the dog story." Like, <laughs> I think that's what happened. Just writing it at whatever page he was already at, you know. Yeah, like, he's like, "This is as good a place as any to put this." <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was. I would put it at fun, dumb but fun. That would that would be my rating of this book. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked a little at the beginning. Uh, I feel dumb but fun is a good good uh, genre for these. I feel like the worst of them is when they feel like it, the first step of preparing a defense of yourself where you're oh, like, yeah. you're yeah. like, look, there are going to be people asking questions about some shit. So let me set some shit straight here while I have the chance. Yeah. Like, have you done uh, scar tissue? Yes. The yes. One? yes. Yeah. Like that's the opposite of this. I feel like. Yeah. Scar tissue was a, a lot of, I feel like Sebastian Bach really kind of let, let not all of it, but most of it out there in the sense of here's who I am. These are the dumb things that I've done. Like I've learned. And I feel like Ketis is very much like, here's all the things that I've done and they've all made me who I am. And I wouldn't change any of them. Even the parts about, <laughs> yeah. you know, like having sex with teenagers, even now as I'm like 50, that most kind of, of it's thing. It's not even my fault, dude. Yeah. Yes. Right. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Uh, Jay, thank you so much for, ha- for coming on and talking with us today. Oh no. Thank you for having me. Uh, I never thought I'd get to talk this much about skid row as a grown man. Well, so. I love it. That's what this show exists for is to, uh, to feed the, these urges and also <laughs> talk about bad books. Uh, do you want to plug your show? Um, sure. Uh, if you want to check us out, I don't even own a television.com. We talk about bad books of all variety, not just the rock and roll kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Listen to some episodes. We're on iTunes. Check it out. Um, if you like it, subscribe. I highly recommend it. If you are listening to this, you should listen to that show. I also want to commend the excellent production values, just the over and above production values that you guys do. All the songs uh are fucking great and really catchy i I, you heard me uh uh quote one of them earlier in this episode uh i i really appreciate that as somebody who (laughs) creates a uh, semi-original music for almost every episode of this uh it's a lot of work so i i I really like your guys show so well thank you um yeah i actually i went to college for audio engineering right before the idea of being a professional audio engineer became completely impossible because now everyone has a recording studio in their bedroom so i i I figure i have to have something to justify those student loans and it's our podcast yeah yeah yeah. no i I think that that is one of the the cool things about the indie podcasting thing is that it gives such a great outlet to do all sorts of little audio projects and um no i I love I, i don't even own a tv so thanks for coming on for that uh, for us, um, there is one thing that I would like to do is just shout out uh, two people who uh, emailed us. Um, we got some emails? Oh, we got some emails, uh, especially uh, listener Michael, Michael B., who suggested a number of tremendously good books about the disco era cool. uh, that I had not heard of yet uh, doing some background research for that. So, uh, Michael... Thank you for emailing. We will definitely look into all these, uh, the books about Sylvester and Arthur Russell uh, and yeah, American dance music culture, 1970 to 1979. That sounds fucking great. We'll look into these. Thank you for emailing. And if you would like to send us an email, you can always email us at andintroducingpod at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at andintropod. I, of course, am on Twitter at say what again. 
And I am on Twitter at Miss Molly Mary. And our SoundCloud is at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. And remember to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate review to whatever. Fuck, I hate <laughs> plugging the iTunes. Just tell your friends that this show is good. That is the only recommendation I can ever I can ever give. Touch, Just tell touch a, a friend. friend. Touch a friend. Look them straight in the eyes. Unleash your best Sebastian Box scream and say, and introducing <laughs> podcast. It's wow. good. <laughs> uh, and until then JW thank you so much one more time thank and we'll you. be back in another two weeks with another story of musicians lives here on and introducing <laughs> <laughs>